Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, I want to continue on the series from the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to deal with, I almost don't feel I need to say this, because every topic Jesus touched in the Sermon on the Mount is a heavy topic. Thank you. And the one today is about being judgmental. Um, I don't want to do a show of hands, because everybody will have to raise their hand, but I think every one of us has been on the receiving end of condemning judgment, haven't we? We felt it. We felt people look down on us, reject us, be disgusted by us, want to avoid us just because of what we've done or what we look like or who we are. They, they may not even know us that deeply, but they've just judged us and made us feel it. And Every one of us probably in this room, if we're being honest, have done the same thing to somebody else. I got to tell you that this week, preparing this sermon was a very difficult experience for me. Uh, The study part was easy. The writing part was fun. It was a spiritual preparation that was a mess because when you prepare to preach to others on being judgmental, the Holy Spirit points out to you throughout the week just how judgmental you are. And I have to tell you that I discovered this week that though I'm a pastor, I judge very quickly and very often. I'm not proud of saying that. If that's my confession, I wonder if some of you would join me in it. I, I mean, just driving here to church, I saw a man walking slowly down the bike path by Barrington Woods and this, the rain was about to come down. And I wish my first thought was, oh dear, I hope you make it to your car before the downpour. But I have to confess my first thought was, bro, doesn't your phone have a weather app? Like, don't you see the sky? It's going to pour any second. Why are you walking on the stroll outside? You're going to get dumped on. How many times have you jumped to a disdainful, derogatory view of someone else? And I'm not just saying that you acknowledge something that they did was off or wrong or misguided, but that along with that factual observation was this feeling of disgust and disdain. I think a lot of people associate Christianity with judgmentalism, and probably rightly so. If we're honest, we have blown it in the church. The church has been historically one of the most condemning and judgmental places on earth for a lot of people. And recent research reveals, especially for millennials, that one of the reasons they give the church a wide berth is because it is in the church more than in any other place they've felt judgment. But you know, as I've really taken an honest look at our culture, I've got to say, despite that confession, the church has blown it. The church no longer has a monopoly on being judgmental. It has become the national pastime. Everybody in our culture is so busy judging everybody else 
in our culture. In fact, we wake up in the morning, and the first thing most of us do is look at our phone, and, and there's a bit of sadness at where our country is, but there's also a bit of delight, of anticipatory delight. What new craziness can I be outraged over today? Oh, what did he do now? And we all know who he is. What would we be upset about if it weren't for him? (laughs) And you realize just how quick we are to want to fuel the fire of indignation and outrage by judging someone, just anyone except ourselves. When Jesus starkly says, do not judge, what he's saying is not Don't make moral distinctions about things. Don't be confused about right or wrong. But he's saying that element of condemnation and rejection and disdain that we often feel towards other people is never acceptable to God. It's never acceptable to God. I want to read the passage for us. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And for whatever reason, my thing is that... It's on. It's just not working. Would you mind advancing the slides for me? Thanks. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. I think many of us have heard and even quoted that scripture before. But let's take a fresh look and what Jesus is really saying to us about the spirit of judgment. Because judging others is very spiritually damaging to us and to the person we're judging, and it gets in the way of, it hinders God's work in our life and in the work, and his work in the lives of others that we're judging. So let's take a look at that first thing, that our judgment hinders God's work in us. I'm not anything close to a morning person, but every now and then, either my dogs or the Holy Spirit wakes me up at like 5 a.m. I don't know what's going on. I'm confused, groggy, but I wake up. And the first thing you have to do in my house is walk those little dogs. Don't get dogs. (laughs) It's just a pain in the So we got to walk the dogs first thing in the morning, and when you wake up that early, it's really dark outside, and as you walk through your neighborhood, it's a whole different experience of your neighborhood. All the windows are darkened, and though I almost never wake up early, when I do, I'm amazed at how quickly, as I'm strolling down, looking at all the darkened windows, I start looking down my nose at all those sleepyheads. Mm-hmm. Still cozy in your bed, are you? Lazy. The early bird gets the worm. When am I ever the early bird? But one time and already within five minutes, I'm feeling smug and superior. There seems to be something about being woke that makes you want to judge those who are asleep. That one was for the millennials. (laughs) What is it about being awake that makes you disdain those who are asleep? Jesus says, 
do not judge or you too will be judged. See, I think what he's saying is this. When you're confronted with a clear immorality in another person's life, something that is so obviously wrong, no one can dispute the wrongness of it. When you're confronted with that, the confusion isn't, is this person right or wrong? Is that act right or wrong? Is racism ever right? Is there ever a situation in which you say, thank God we were racist just now? That was the right thing to, no. Is misogyny, is uh, brutal violence toward another person? Are any of these things ever right? No, when we see that, is theft right? No. All these things are clearly wrong, and when we see it, we see the universal truth in it. That was wrong, and we want to stand on the side of God in that equation and say, hey, God, God, I agree with you. That's messed up. That kind of bigotry, that kind of cruelty, that kind of dishonesty, it's always wrong. And God, I'm with you. That's messed up. And that can actually represent spiritual growth. It can represent the fact that we are less confused than ever about the difference between right and wrong. But something subtle happens in that place. That we identify with God in that picture But sometimes we do it so much, we forget that we're not God. We're closer to the people we're judging than we are to the God who alone has the right to judge. See, there's an interesting thing that happens when you have a lot of kids in a family and there's a large age spread, is that the older kids start to grow up and mature and they become like your staff. You know, they they help you raise the younger ones. Some of you grew up with that experience. You, you, don't, you have younger siblings, so you're more like a surrogate mom or dad. And so it's a joy when the older ones start to take responsibility and they join you in correcting, adjusting the younger ones. But at some point, the older ones start acting like they are the same as you. And you're like, hold up. They don't need a second mom. Don't forget, you're also still one of the kids. You are a citizen. You're not the president. I'm the president, fool. And I think that's so easy for that to happen in our lives is that we forget that even as we're judging someone, we all will one day stand and give an account before the same judge. That when we're tempted to look down our noses at all the idiots that populate our world, that's our favorite word, idiots. That's when we're not wanting to curse, we use the word idiot to say, look how many idiots walk the earth today. Idiot being anybody who thinks differently than I do. We forget that that idiocy lives in us too. And what happens then is we selectively key in on the things where we are doing okay. And we forget that there's still a lot of work God is up to in our own lives. You know, I'm so sick of people who are, are racist. I am too. But there are a lot of other things in my own heart that God is also pretty tired of, and he wants to free me from. And if I focus only on my outrage over the clear wrongness of another person's life, something weird happens where I begin to think, maybe I'm all right, because compared to that mess, I look pretty good right now. Jesus gives this ridiculous illustration of, sorry, what, I don't know what happened there. The next one, there you go. 
of an encounter between two people. One of them's got a little speck of sawdust, and the other one's going, hey, let, me, let me help you. You got something in your eye. Can you imagine if someone just had giant green snot running down there, and they're looking at you and going, you got a little booger, right? There. You got a little, you're like, bro, look at yourself. Look. And it's, an, it's a ridiculous illustration. It's obviously hyperbolic, right? He's, he's, he's exaggerating something, but here's what he's saying. He's not necessarily saying that every time you see something wrong in another person, you're worse than them. What he's saying is, before you focus on the problems in anyone else's life, know this. Remember, at every point, you also have problems. You also have sin. Your sin not, may not be the same as theirs. It might not be greater than theirs. But for you, standing before God, your first priority is your own issue and not the issue of somebody else. That doesn't mean we just pretend nothing's wrong in the world. It doesn't mean we have no voice in each other's lives. But before I get agitated and up in arms about the failings of any other person, God is reminding us, start with you. Because in that place, you will remember how people are forgiven and released. You will remember how any human being can stand before God and not be afraid for their lives. Because this God of ours is a God of mercy. And if we don't experience that mercy and forgiveness in our own lives, we will not have it available to us when we deal with other people's lives. There's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates this plank and speck dynamic very clearly. King David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, was also one of the the most messed up. It's interesting how God seems to use really jacked up people. Thank you. I was pointing to myself and Andrea said amen. Appreciate that. Um, He uses really messed up people to do his stuff. It's a tag team over there. So King David had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. Right there, that's messed up. Okay? One day, he's out on the roof of his palace, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And as will often happen, when a man spies on a woman taking a bath, he desires her, and he abuses his authority, and he summons her to the palace. And she gets pregnant by him. A scandal is about to erupt because this woman isn't just any woman. She happens to be married to one of his most loyal soldiers. And as he realizes what he's done, very typical of human beings, he enters into full-on damage control self-preservation mode. The wrongness of what he's done is completely brushed aside by the looming fear of the damage that is going to be done Not only to himself, but I'm sure this is why we thought of it. It's going to damage the kingdom. The nation of Israel, God's great chosen people are going to be damaged if I am exposed. I have to spare Israel from this. So he's in full-on damage control, self-preservation mode. I've watched pastors enter that mode when they failed morally. Excusing it as, I can't stumble the church. You're not worried about the church. You're worried about you. But this happens to people. And so he arranges for this faithful soldier, this woman's husband, to be killed in battle. So to adultery, he adds murder. 
And when the man is killed in battle, he receives a report and he's able to legitimately marry this woman. Everything seems like all the loose ends are tied up. Phew, I dodged a bullet. And he goes on ruling Israel, business as usual. Nothing's wrong. Now in his life, he had a little drama, a little episode. He could have been in big trouble, but he dodged it. Has that ever happened to you? where you did something stupid, it almost crashed and burned, and by the skin of your teeth, you were spared a lot of calamity. And instead of confronting the wrongness of what you'd done, you were so relieved that you had dodged that bullet, you just kept going with your life. But God didn't just keep going. He was troubled by what David had done and realized that that thing which he had done would always stand between David and God as a barrier. And he wanted to deal with it. Not to condemn David, but to, to, to set him right and then to free him. Because that was going to have a consequence in his life. But often the direct attack is not the most effective. I've learned that over 20 years in ministry, is that sometimes just naming it isn't the best way. So he sends the prophet Nathan with a clever story. He says, David, let me tell you a story. In your kingdom, on your watch... There's a citizen who's very rich. He has lots and lots of sheep and goats and cattle. And one day, a house guest, an old friend came to visit, and he wanted to feed him. But instead of killing one of his own plentiful sheep, he went over to the house of a very poor neighbor who had one lamb that he prized. He slept with this thing. It was like his daughter. He loved this lamb. He was never going to slaughter it and eat it. It was like a member of the family. And he went to that poor man's house, and he grabbed that precious lamb, took it to his own house, and killed it, and fed it to his guest. David's blood is boiling as he hears this story. And he says, as long as I'm king in Israel, that is not going to stand. This guy needs to be put to death. I'm sure Nathan's going, bro, I could not have been more obvious. You replace sheep with woman, and that's you. You're not seeing this? And this is the depth of blindness. I am convinced that the thing in most short supply in our world is self-awareness. And some of the people who think they see themselves are the people who see themselves the least. Nathan is giving a story that exactly parallels what David did, and David is ticked off at a fictional man. So finally he can't take it. He said, David, you are the man. I'm not telling a story about one of your citizens. This is you. Your greed, your violence, your insensitivity to someone else. You see how easily David was outraged at someone else. In fact, the outrage masked his own sin. And God wanted to break through to David's life to deal with David's issues, but David preferred to be ticked off at a fictional citizen in his realm. See, God has work he wants to do in our lives, but when we are fixated on all the wrong in others, it often hinders his great work in our own lives. I'm not saying that those other people aren't wrong. I'm saying that their wrongness is not your priority. That God wants to meet you where you are. And he was dealing with me all week about this. I think he's still working on me. And there are things I won't share from this pulpit, but I realize 
that I've got a lot of stuff to deal with in my own heart with God because I'm a mess too. When we're able to begin with our own sin, what happens is that we meet God not as judge primarily, but as deliverer. We experience a kind of mercy that then allows us to be merciful to other people. Which is why Jesus doesn't say, forget the speck in your brother's eye. He said, that speck is probably a real problem, but you're not going to help him get it out while you're swinging around the telephone pole out of your own eye. Let's deal with that first, because then, rather than in condemnation and condescension, you can actually help your brother with real concern for him or for her. You could help that person Not by looking down, but by pulling up. Now, I don't know where that leaves you because this is very familiar territory. But I don't want you to receive this as, oh, I can't wait to tell somebody to listen to this part. Don't forget the rest of the sermon. Just listen to minute uh, 15 through 18. That's for you. (laughs) Don't do that. I want you to think about how easy it is today in a world full of outrageous idiocy to let all of that drown out the noise of your own soul and miss completely. You know, let me be honest. It often is even in our spiritual lives, it's, it's an easy thing to take a shot at even the church or other Christians around us. You know what's wrong with our faith today? Do you know what's wrong or missing from our church today? And God says, what if My intention is to start that good work in you. Let's begin with you and me, and let's move on to the rest of the world from there. Second thing, and this is only a two-point message, so. Amen. Thank you, Andrea. All right. My self-esteem is through the roof. Judgment hinders God's work in others. It's not just a barrier for you and God. It's a barrier between God and others, and that really we don't have the right to put up. We don't have the right to create blockages between God and people he wants to reach. That is not a freedom we have. It is something that that is akin to spiritual abuse. There's this really powerful scene in John 8, verses 1 through 11 where a woman is caught in adultery, and because we're a church, we probably won't portray her as she looked at that moment. But the implication in this narrative is that she was literally dragged out of the adultery bed, so she's probably not wearing much. I'm outraged that only the woman was dragged out, because she wasn't committed adultery by herself. You can't do that. (laughs) There's someone else involved, but these men drag her into the temple courts and want to stone her according to Mosaic law when it's very clear the Mosaic law said to stone both as a demonstration that God takes marriage vows with utmost seriousness. So they bring her there, and because Jesus is known to be teaching in the temple courts, they bring her right to him. And as a pastor, I know exactly what this scene was about. Because I've had people go, so uh, transgender stuff, what do you th- what's your take on that? All this hubbub about sexual abuse in Hollywood. What's your take on that? Cloning. What is your take on And people want to ask me all these questions, not because they want to have a conversation. They want to know, all right, where are you, buddy? 
Are you one of the good guys or are you among the cavalcade of idiots that form the background scenery of my life? Here's the reputation Jesus had. The reputation he had was he's soft on sin. He doesn't take sin seriously. In fact, one of his nicknames is, oh, that guy's a friend of sinners, which, by the way, I think he would have taken as a compliment. Yeah, I am, very much so. What are you to sinners? <laughs> and because he had that reputation, they wanted to trap him theologically and morally. So they dragged this woman and said, let's see what he does. And if he releases her, they'll be saying, see, marriage means nothing to this guy. He likes adultery. He probably encourages it. And if he instead said, give me a stone, and he whacked her on the head, they would have said, see, he's not any different from us. It was a trap. But Jesus is very clever. And instead of debating the rightness and wrongness of adultery, what he says is, and he stoops down and writes, and gosh, I wish... I wish that it had been recorded for us by John what Jesus wrote in that dirt. But who cares what it really was because he gets up and he says this. All right, here's what we're going to do. The guys who have no sin, you be the first to throw a stone. Whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone at her. What was he doing there? Exactly what we talked about. He's not debating whether this woman was doing something wrong. She clearly was, not alone, but she clearly was. But what's at issue for Jesus is not whether she was right or wrong, but who gets to stand in judgment over her. Do you understand that? That's so important for us to get, that it's not about whether this was right or this was wrong, but who in this world is authorized to stand in judgment over her. And as he says that, it cuts to the heart of everyone there. And what it records is one by one, starting with the older guys. Self-awareness comes with age. Starting with the older guys, they're like, yeah, you know what? The younger guys are still fuming. They're like, I'm better than... And then eventually they see all the older guys leaving. They're like, maybe I'm not going to be the one throwing the stone. And they release their stones and walk away. And at the end of that scene, what's left is just Jesus and this woman. They're alone now in the temple courts. And here's the conversation that ensues. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Hey, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no one. Then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And I want you to pause and receive that. Because you see, in that scene in the temple court that day, there was only one person who had the right to judge her and to condemn her. There was only one person in that circle who had the right to do that to her. And he's the last one left standing with her. And instead of scorching her, he frees her. What he says is, all of your accusers are gone. I don't condemn you either. But then he says something very interesting. Now leave your life of sin. 
He's not soft on sin. He knows that sin is the great barrier between people and the God who loves them. But he doesn't convict of sin through condemnation, but through grace and mercy and love. Now, before you hear that churchy language, you go, yeah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Is that the way you respond to the sins in other lives? Is that the way you respond to your spouse when they do wrong against you? Is that the way you respond to your friends or your siblings or your girlfriend or boyfriend? Is that the way you respond to your children when they screw up? It's not a question of whether they were right or wrong, but how they will come to discover that. And what Jesus says is it doesn't happen through condemnation. It happens through mercy. Listen to the, the verse that comes right after the big one. Everyone knows John 3.16. How about John 3.17? I don't know why we don't memorize this one. It might be even more important than the one before it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus is not saying we should be less judgmental. He's saying we should not be judgmental at all. At all. That doesn't mean we have confusion morally about the difference between right and wrong, but our judgment has no place in that picture. Our condemnation has no place in that picture at all. And if we keep inserting it, God's work in that person's life will be hindered over and over and over. Condemnation is such a dramatic-sounding word, but it really is about that emotional disdain. It's disgust. It's rejection. It's not just, man, that's a messed-up view, but that's a messed-up view, and you're an idiot. I hate you. Get out of my face. You disgust me. See, you can disagree with a person, but in Christ, we can never condemn another person that way. Look down her noses and say, not only are you wrong, but you're wrong and you're an idiot and I hate you. And can I just challenge you because our rejection makes our rejection the primary issue. And they hear and feel our rejection and cannot any longer hear what God is trying to say to them. That thing we have a problem with, God also has a problem with it, but he wants to actually fix it. He wants to set that person free, and our rejection keeps blocking that work. And parents, if you're a parent in this room, I want to challenge you. We parents are maybe the most guilty of doing this to our kids over and over. Did you do your homework? No, I fell asleep. What we can and should say is, maybe you should get to bed earlier you got to get up and do it now. You can't just blow off your homework. It's important that you get your things done. That's what needs to be said. But what they hear is, what? You fell asleep? I hate you. I wish I had a different child. I wish Elijah was my child, not you. Because he's raised so perfectly. Do you understand what we do to our kids? Is It's not just that we're pointing out what they did is bad for them, but it makes us disgusted. 
And what they feel is not just, oh, I need to grow up as a human being. What they feel is that my mom and my dad don't love me when I act like this. We say, oh, no, that's not what I meant at all. But that's exactly what they feel. And it's what everyone else feels when that's what we give to them. Jesus, speaking ahead about his crucifixion, said that when I'm crucified, when they literally nail me to a cross and lift me up on that pole, that crucifixion is going to signal to the world how much God wants to draw all people to himself. His cross would become forever a symbol of God's desire to call his children home to him. That's what the cross is. We're told by Paul later on that we function as Jesus ambassadors. He's making an appeal to the world through us. What he's saying to the world is, come back to me. Don't stay far away. Be reconciled to me. And the question that we have to wrestle through is, does the church point to a God who feels this way? Do people associate the church as a place where people who smell bad and are far from God are being invited back home to him? Does the church point to a God who did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through great sacrifice? I don't think Jesus calls people to himself through some careless Blanket amnesty. Ah, oh, whatever. I don't care about that stuff. I got bigger fish to fry than your sex life or your dishonesty or your greed or violence. Don't worry about it. Just come. I don't think that's his attitude at all. He calls sin what it is. He understands what a barrier it puts between God the Father and this lost child. But his overall mission is to draw people to himself. And our judgment pushes them away from him. In his book, Why We Eat Our Own. What a title for a Christian book. But it's written by a pastor named Michael Cheshire, who realized that the Christians are the people who are most viciously attacking their own wounded. That when a Christian falls... And especially when they fall because they did something sinful or stupid, that rather than the family drawing close to them, the family whoosh, backs away. You did what? Oh. And as a result, especially when a leader falls, everyone disappears. And so many Christians who have made a mess of their lives through sin find that they're deeply broken by what they did, longing to come home to Father God, And what they find in their experience is the greatest impediment to coming home to the Father is their brothers and sisters don't welcome them back. Can you imagine, if you have, I have four children, if one of my children ran away from home and got very lost, did some really destructive things, was living a mess on the streets, and they wanted to come home, my whole heart would become home no matter what. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you saw. This is where you belong. You come home to us. That would be my heart above every other concern. Wouldn't it be yours? And can you imagine your heartache if that child never came home and you finally saw them years later and said, why didn't you come home? And they said, well, 
my brother and sister kept calling me saying, don't you dare show your face in here. You made your bed. You lie in it. We don't want you here. You don't belong in this family. There's no place for you. We turned your room into a game room. Get away from us. If you heard that, how broken hearted would you be? When we scorn and condemn and judge, especially those who are far from God, and especially our own brothers and sisters who have fallen, we get in the way of God's desire to bring that person home. That's what God wants more than anything. Because before God is a judge, he is a father. And before we are guilty or innocent, we are his children. That's his heart for us. I'm going to draw to a close by sharing this powerful passage from Romans. Paul is basically summarizing what Jesus taught. And he says, you then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. It is hard enough when you're far from God to know which way home is. But if you find that compass heading and you want to come home, may we never be the reason someone doesn't make it all the way there. Every one of us is going to stand in front of God one day, make an account of our lives. Judgment is necessary. It's the foundation of justice. Without judgment, there is no justice. There is just chaos. But God is the only one who judges rightly every time. He's the only one with the right to judge. And it's been my prayer all week, in addition to my own repentance, that what God would do through this sermon is begin a mighty work in our church of forever banishing, condemning judgment over other people. And I'm going to tell you, that's going to be the work of a lifetime. It won't happen right away. But just be sensitive to it this week. Watch how the, almost the minute the service is over, just watch. The minute we begin lining up for food, oh, nice, cutsies, I guess, huh? All right. You must be super hungry. You know, free food brings out animal in people, you know. And, and so you, you will just watch how quickly, how quickly your heart goes there and how much that grieves and hinders the work of God. How badly he wants to break through that and start touching people's lives. I will confess 
that I'm a judgmental person. And I also know that at times my own judgmental spirit has stood in the way of God's work in some of your lives. And if that is the case, I want you to know the Lord is dealing with me on that. He, in fact, it's always a pleasure when he brings me down memory lane and reminds me in this little museum, remember that one? Remember this person who used to go to our church until you? Remember? And I'm dealing with this, and he's dealing with me. And if I've wounded you in that way, I don't just want to give you a blanket, I'm sorry. I want to ask you to come tell me. I want to ask you to share with me what I've done in your life that hurt you and give me an opportunity to just express my sorrow over that and continue God's work in me because I am a judgmental person. And I'm begging God to make me less so. And I think if he would make all of us less so, this church would be a lighthouse in this community. This church would draw people to God. Let's bow and pray. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that it is God's kindness that leads us to repent. It's the hope and the promise that when we own our junk, God's response is never condemnation. It is forgiveness and kindness. That's huge. And if we are going to be God's voice and his face in this world, that's how we have to be to each other to everyone else. Some of the things people do when they're far from God are very ugly. But they won't stop being those things until God brings them home. What matters more to you? To drive a person's face into the mud and show them how bad they are or draw them to the Father so He could release them from all of that. Could it be that some of the numbness we feel in our own soul is because we've been so focused on how broken the world is, we've stopped coming to God, confessing the brokenness in us. So why don't we take a moment, and wherever we are, let's just pray in this moment right now. Let's do that. Let's sit before God quietly. And let's pray. God, we thank you 
that when you look at our ugliness, you do not condemn us. We're so thankful that we have a God like that. And we ask for your healing in the lives of anyone who was shattered in their heart by the cruel condemnation and judgment of others. We pray for those who have been driven far from you because of the judgmental spirit of another Christian, that you would begin healing those people in our lives. And Holy Spirit, take away from us that condemning judgmental spirit. We hate that it's in us. And even when we have the moral high ground, we hate that we are so condemning of others. Change that in us. Scoop it out. Replace it with the same heart of love and mercy which comes out of you. We know you're calling people home. Help us to help you in that. Never to stand in the way. To join you in calling out. Come home to God. It's where you belong. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.